The Lord be with you. Uh, Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for your blessings even when we can't see them. Uh, Thank you for the water that you're pouring upon the earth that produces fruit and um, plants and vines for our very lives. And um, Lord, we thank you for this time to be together. We ask your blessing as we talk about uh, the essence of, of marriage, as we try to get to the heart of what what marriage is a picture of. We ask that you would help us now in this time. Would you give me clarity of, of mind and would you help us to uh, take away some parts from what we have to say today and apply it to our lives that it would be helpful uh, no matter what state we are in. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I was tempted just to start off with a video that like Chinese uh, balloon you know, being burst because I thought that was the coolest thing I've ever seen last night. Didn't really have anything to do with marriage. Then I was like, well, we could play, what's the song from um, Night at the Roxbury? It's what, what is love over and over, because that's exactly what we're talking about today. What is love? That's, I haven't been able to get that out of my head. So uh, chapter three in Tim Keller's The Meaning of Marriage talks about the essence of marriage. Uh, everybody, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. It's fine. Um, hopefully you had a chance to read it. And this is one of my favorite chapters in there because I find it so confronting, I guess, to kind of the way the average person sees marriage today. And he starts off with putting his finger right on it, I think, the whole love and the piece of paper. Have you all heard something like that in in the world today? Like, what's the point of getting a piece? We don't want the piece of paper of, you know, a marriage certificate that's only going to complicate things or make matters worse. Have you heard stuff like that before? Not really? No? Yes. Yeah, I'm getting yeses in. Yeah. So I, I do think that the whole uh, perception of marriage, although a lot of folks still want to be married, uh, if you ask them when they're, they're younger, it seems like it's a more vocal crowd saying that like marriage is an outdated institution that is only you know, basically incompatible with human nature, the fact that monogamy, that sort of thing, would be even, uh, that, that deprives us of freedom. So I was tempted to go off and really ex- like explaining why we're at a place now where so many people think about marriage on such individualistic terms. That they, why do we think it's all about me and my self-fulfillment and all that? I'm, I'm not going to do that insofar as Keller doesn't really go into it, but this is essentially how our culture defines love, right? It's love is primarily an emotion, and he names that right at the start. And so marriage, and particularly being seen as a covenant, is going to push back against this idea as love, as purely an authentic, uh, maybe even spontaneous emotion that you can't control. And that's, I mean, love is not something, it's commanded in the Bible, but not as an emotion. You can't command somebody to feel something, right? I mean, that would be absurd. And so he talks about the importance of if love is commanded, then it has to be something more than purely a feeling of affection. And he goes on to talk about, uh, he talks a lot about, I mean, this whole chapter is about commitment in many ways. And it's not any surprise that he talks so much about sex in this chapter. Uh, Even, I think, Dan Allender's book, which we 
referenced in the very first one, I talked a lot, but this one is filled with examples about sex, because again, I think this is in our day, something that sex is seen as kind of the pinnacle of a romantic feeling that you must never do, uh, you must never perform sex for somebody else. You have to always be, quote unquote, in the mood. And he talks about this on page 80, um, that if you only, or sorry, not page 80, this is page 82. Um, this is really important. There are a few sections that I, uh, really it's 81 and 82, that I'm going to read in full here. But it says, this downward spiral of if you approach love as something is only a feeling, and, and sex, therefore, is something that uh, should never be done just for the other person, but only when you're in the mood. He says there's this downward spiral that you're going to get into. Uh, it, page 81, if you won't make love unless you are in a romantic mood, at the very same time as your spouse is in a romantic mood, then sex will not happen that often. This can dampen and quench your partner's interest in sex, which means there will be even fewer opportunities going forward. So the more you uh, demand that both of you have to be in the mood at the same time, then you create emotional distance, which creates fewer opportunities for both of you to be in the mood, which creates even further, uh, or sorry, less times to uh, have sex. So therefore, if you have sex unless, there, unless, if you, sorry, therefore, if you never have sex unless there is a great mutual passion, there will be fewer and fewer times of mutual passion. One of the reasons we believe in our culture that sex should always and only be the result of great passion, is that so many people today have learned how to have sex outside of marriage. And this is a very different experience than having sex inside of it. And I'll stop right there and say, I don't think people, if you ask them, would, they would say, absolutely not. It's, this is pretty much the same thing, because sex is primarily uh, just a physical act or maybe the overflow of some sort of emotional experience. But he, he's pointing at something that's actually really significant, and he goes into why that is. Outside of marriage, sex is accompanied by a desire to impress or entice someone. It's something like the thrill of the hunt. When you are seeking to draw in someone you don't know, it injects risk, uncertainty, and pressure to lovemaking that quickens the heartbeat and stirs the emotions. If great sex is defined this way, then marriage, the quote, piece of paper, will indeed stifle that particular kind of thrill. He quotes Bertrand Russell a little later on, who said basically it's incompatible, the sense of duty, if you were to, uh, to love somebody, if you were to have sex with somebody out of a sense of duty, it is always going to strip it of its power and meaning and significance. And Keller's arguing exactly the opposite, that in fact... Um, this is the way, because we've so been prone to think about sex outside of marriage, those numbers we talked about the first week have gone up so significantly, that it is really a fundamentally different emotional understanding of what sex is. And so he continues, this define. Uh, let's see, where am I? But this defines sexual sizzle in terms that would be impossible to maintain in any case. The fact that it is the thrill of the hunt is not, only the, is not the only kind of thrill or passion available, nor is it the best. 
uh, he talked about his and his wife's, when they were virgin, virgins and they got married, it was like they had a picture of what they wanted to do, but not the skills to actually do it. And he said, however, uh, we had unfortunately not learned to use sex to impress, nor to mix the thrill of the dangerous and the forbidden with sexual stimulation and mistake it for love. With sex, we were trying to be vulnerable to each other, to give each other the gift of barefaced rejoicing in one another, and to know the pleasure of giving one another pleasure. And as the weeks went by and then the years, we did it better and better. Yes, it means making love sometimes when one or both of you are not in the, quote, mood. But sex in a marriage done to give joy rather than to impress can change your mood on the spot. The best sex makes you want to weep tears of joy, not bask in the glow of a good performance. I mean, reading that, I, I was reading it to Molly. I was like, man, this is so, um, you know, I, I didn't have sex before marriage, but I think we're so tempted to, to think about sex on these terms of um, basically trying to always win the other person. Does that make sense? I mean, have y'all thought about sex in that way? Like, would you have any pushback on Keller at this point when he's talking about basically the difference of love outside of marriage versus love inside of marriage? If you ask the average person who's not a Christian on the street today, and um, Tim, I think that's, that was kind of my experience too. The church, by and large, doesn't really talk a lot about some of these things, which is why we, we want to do it here. I think the average person would absolutely take, you know, um, take offense at the idea that they're really trying to impress the other person, even if they're just dating and they're not married. 
Maybe that's my own hunch. I think most people are like, well, no, the other person really knows me and really sees me. Uh, and no, we don't need a piece of paper for that. Okay, maybe it doesn't, you know, some people will say the piece of paper could actually dampen love. I think most people were probably apathetic to it. Like, it's great if you want to do it, but, you know, me and my boyfriend, me and my girlfriend, whatever, we, we really love one another. We're committed to each other, and, and therefore we're going to choose to have sex. And if you look, actually, the, I think this was written, oh gosh, when was it written? It was o over a decade ago. But the latest studies are showing that a lot, a lot more younger people aren't just going out there with promiscuous sex, trying to like hook up all the time and, and that sort of thing. It's, of course, it's still out there, but by and large, there's a great title of a book called iGen. It's like today's teenagers, why they're um, less rebellious, uh, more insecure, and totally unprepared for adulthood or something. It's a sociologist who's talking about, by and large, people aren't doing a lot of the stuff that uh, earlier generations were more rebellious, so to speak. You know, they're not—they're staying at home longer. They're—they're they're not really like you know having the sex, drugs, rock and roll kind of experience. Whereas Keller, I think, is addressing some of those things. And what your—I think your average person today would say, no, I'm not looking to just go hook up with somebody. I really am looking for a committed relationship. And yet, I don't think getting married is, is, is an absolute necessity for, for having sex. And let me just say right here that the, if God invented it, as we said, God is very pro-sex. And I think the biggest thing that people think about when they look at the church is that the church wants to try and rein in on your freedom and your joy. But the whole purpose, and this is why I love this chapter, is the whole purpose of the marriage uh, relationship, the whole purpose of that piece of paper is not to actually somehow dampen the experience of sex. It actually is going to en enhance not just sex, but your whole relationship. Keller's arguing that unless you get that sheet of paper, you're actually not fully committing yourself to the other person. That's a pretty significant claim, and we're going to try to unpack why and how he says this. So um, let's, let's move on. He basically says, the essence of marriage, if you were to sum up the whole chapter, is in this word covenant. Y'all heard the word covenant before? If you were in uh, um, confirmation here, I know Al Phillips says a lot of uh, talking about what covenant is. Anybody know, ever heard of this? Show of hands. You've heard of this word covenant, hopefully? Okay, yeah, great. Um, and one of the best things about this chapter is that compares and contrasts a covenantal understanding of a relationship versus what is so prevalent today is a consumer relationship. I'd say that's the nuts and bolts of this chapter. Because for a number of reasons, he doesn't have the space to, to explain why we are so consumeristic today. You think about the economy, you think about how everything's become so individualized, uh, psychologically, internally, advertising, all of it furthers this notion that it is all about consuming something. And so relationships, by and large, have been slowly, especially over the last 60 years, become more commodified. At the end of the day, you're not going to stick into something unless it's going to help you in your self-fulfillment. That's, that's a consumer relationship. That Okay, even two parties coming together, and both parties are agreeing to be a part of you know, this agreement, 
insofar as they both are going to be benefited. The second the other person stops meeting their needs, they are going to bail, basically. And this is what he talks about on page 84. <clears throat> Throughout history, there have always been consumer relationships. Such relationships last only as long as the vendor meets your needs at a cost that's acceptable to you. If another vendor delivers better services or the same services at a better cost, you have no obligation to stay in that consumer relationship. In consumer relationships, it could be said that the individual's needs are more important than the relationship. And I think that is definitely part of what the thinking today is bubbling up, that maybe that's stated pretty starkly, but it's at least consistent with the average person out there who would say, you know, I wouldn't want somebody, even if my spouse said was, you know, I'm no longer being fulfilled, it's almost seen as virtuous to say, well, then we need to end this. We need to back out of this relationship because it's a consumer model. It's thinking that the primary purpose is for each individual's needs to be fulfilled. Uh, and he talks about, in addition to these consumer relationships, there are <clears throat> covenantal relationships throughout history. And the best example, we talked about this uh, either last time or the time before, is the parent-child relationship. It would, be, it would be a huge stigma for parents just to like give up their kids. Socially, that's still very much unacceptable. You're, you're still seeing, like, you know, sticking with your child who gives you nothing. Your needs as a parent often are not being met because of what your child is doing. In fact, it's usually just the opposite, as we talked before. And yet, there is the social expectation that your needs are going to die for the relationship, that your needs as the parent are going to be given up for the good of your child. And so that is probably the most helpful picture because I think, by and large, our society has moved marriage from a covenant, which it was, to a consumer relationship. But parenting, interestingly enough, is still very much a covenant relationship. In the Bible, it talks about covenants all the time. A covenant is basically a solemn, binding oath that is for the good of the relationship between two parties. Uh, you see this. I, I noted a couple features of what usual... Uh, covenants look like. And it might be helpful. Let's turn to, if there, you have a Bible in your pews, I'll just take you to one example. There's some, covenant is a helpful thing. If you're new to the Bible, if you're trying to figure out how does this whole book fit together, the word covenant actually really does help kind of put some of the pieces in order of how the flow begins. So if you have creation and then the fall, uh, you know, so if God created all things good and there's man and woman, the fall is when man chooses to go his own way and rebel against God. And what God does right there in Genesis 3 is he begins to uh, basically follow through on a covenant. Where if, he, if God was just a consumer, he could have said right here and there, I'm, we're done with this relationship between God and man. We're just, you broke the covenant, it's over. But God always upholds his end of the covenant through grace, through mercy. He's always faithful to that. In marriage, it would be really helpful when both actually are committed to the good of the other, no matter the performance of what the other does in their vows, with a very small, uh, I would say, exception, which we'll get to in a little bit. But Exodus chapter 20, uh, 19 and 20, we see this covenant with God's people through Moses. So if you've got 
creation, the fall, then you've got Noah. God makes a covenant with Noah, the rainbow, right? We think about that on days like today. Uh, you've got then Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, where God promises to be a blessing in this relationship with Abraham and his descendants. Then you fast forward to where we are in Exodus, and Moses is this, uh, really the third, so Noah, Abraham, Moses, is kind of the third major figure of God's covenants in the Old Testament. And the covenant, there's promises, first of all. There's expectations, right? Like when you make vows in a wedding service, you're promising something, right? And God is basically promising them through Moses that they will inherit the land. They're going to have this promised land of Canaan. But the Ten Commandments, surely you've heard of the Ten Commandments, those are the stipulations of the covenant. The stipulations are like the promises, the vows, basically. So what's interesting is oftentimes people think of, well, this is purely conditional. Like if you uphold your end of the bargain, then, then that's the only way this relationship's going to be maintained. But let me just point out just something here. In verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 1 and 2, God spoke these words to Moses saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And before he gets to even the first commandment, before any of the stipulations of what have to be done, has to be done in this relationship, he says something really important that clues us in as to what covenants are all about. He says, you were enslaved in this nation, and it wasn't because you were a great people or anything that you did or you were super obedient to me. He doesn't say any of that. What he says is, I am simply your God who loves you, and I brought you out of the land of Egypt, totally unmerited, totally unconditional. And then he gives them the stipulations. If this relationship going forward is going to work, this is what this looks like. So he takes his people out of um, basically slavery to a false king, and he says, I am your king, I am your God. This is what it looks like to live in my holy presence. I think oftentimes we think of Christianity or religion totally in the reverse. We think, here are the things that we must do, the Ten Commandments. And if we do those, then God's going to love us and accept us, yada, yada, yada. But I just wanted to show in this, probably the most famous Old Testament covenant, we see the fact that it's unconditional promising on the very front end that he would bring these people out of Egypt before he even gives them any commands that they have to fulfill. That's important because marriage has that conditional and unconditional component to it. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. But, so marriage is probably, even more than parenting, uh, the most supreme covenantal relationship there is among human beings. And the reason he says that is there's both yeah, this horizontal between husband and wife dimension as well as a vertical between God and um, man dimension. If you've been to a, a wedding ceremony before, I hope, yeah? Okay, um, so this is really interesting. This is a little pop quiz here. You've heard these famous words. Dearly beloved, we've come together in the presence of God to witness and bless. And it goes down explaining what this union is all about. And then it gets to this uh, question where, well, he says, I require and charge both of you here in the presence of God that if either of you know any reason why you may not lawfully be married, you do now confess it. And there's usually that awkward silence really quickly before we move to these questions. And this is still when you have the father of the bride standing in the middle of the bride and the groom. 
And the question is first posed to the woman. This is in the Anglican service. Will you have this man to be your husband, to live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love him, keep him, honor or honor and keep him in sickness and in health? And the question's asked to the wife as well. You've heard this, right? Okay. But then there's readings of God's word. Then there's a little homily. And then they move up to the altar. And then they actually say these words, In the name of God, I take you to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, until we are parted by death. Now my question is, which one of those are the vows? Is the vow, what is it? The second one? Second one. Interesting, they both are. But they're pointed at different people. And Keller actually briefly mentions this. I didn't make the connection until I read this chapter again. I've missed it as many times as I read this chapter. When they're standing, and it's right after, you know, if there's any reason you can't be lawfully married, you confess it, and then you say, all right, so-and-so, will you have this man to be your husband? Where are they facing? They're not facing each other. They're facing the priest, who is basically symbolizing the presence of God. You're making a vow before God, before... You then go up, after the reading of God's word, after the homily, then you grab hands and you're facing each other and making vows. And that's what Keller is saying is makes this marriage relationship so amazing is it's a covenant, not just between, you know, when you're holding hands facing one another. That's a parent-child kind of, that's just horizontal. But when you actually, before you do all that, you're making a, a promise, a vow to God about this relationship. It's got vertical and horizontal dimensions to it. And he says every single marriage service uh, in Christian traditions, it's not so much about, um, both this vertical and horizontal dimension are uh, discussed. So I think that's that's really neat because basically the foundation, notice you start with the, the vow before God, before you move into the vow with your spouse. And that is um, what makes marriage such a unique covenant. And covenant, interestingly enough, is the perfect blend of law and love. And that's why we went to the book of Exodus. I wanted you to see it's this, oftentimes we tend to pit law and love, duty and delight against one another. But a covenant is the perfect blend of both of those. It's the promise of loving not just now, but in the future. I'm going to oblige, I'm obligating myself to love you via a promise, a vow, an oath. And, interestingly enough, it's not just in spite of that, it's actually because of that promise of future love that the feelings of love become so deep and vibrant. And, let's see where we are. Okay, we got a little bit of time. Um... The piece of paper, this is on page 88, and I don't know if I included this quotation or not, but the, the covenant of marriage, is, it's this blend of law and love. It's a relationship that's, interestingly enough, far more intimate and personal than merely a legal and business relationship. Yet at the same time, it's more durable, binding, and unconditional than a relationship that's purely based on feeling and affection. That's what makes this both a delight and wonderfully durable. The piece of paper is actually incredibly important, and a lot of people out there don't realize that, because what it does is it creates a safe space, so to speak, 
where you are truly giving yourself to the other person. I love, he says this really poignantly. Um, let me find that quote. Yeah. A covenant relationship is not just intimate despite being legal. It is a relationship that is more intimate because it is legal. This is amazing. So someone who says, I love you, but we don't need to be married, may be saying, I don't love you enough to curtail my freedom for you. The willingness to enter a binding covenant, far from stifling love, is a way of enhancing, even supercharging it. A wedding promise is proof that your love is actually at a marriage level as well as a radical act of, giving, of self-giving all by itself. So when dating or living together, you have to put your value daily, you have to prove your value daily by impressing and enticing one another. You have to show that the chemistry is still there, that the relationship is fun and fulfilling, or it will be over. And that's where I think he's most accurate. I think he's nailed it, because most people would say, no, we really know each other, we really love one another. Okay, but he puts his finger on this. You're still, if you search your heart of hearts, if you were just dating, you're living together, you're not thinking about marriage, um, really, at the end of the day, it's all about you've got to make that other person still feel fulfilled and valued, and you're still putting, so to speak, your best foot forward if you are looking for this in some way, or otherwise the relationship is over. And so he's saying uh, you're basically in a consumer relationship at that point. The legal bond of marriage creates a space of security where we can open up and reveal our true selves. We can be vulnerable, no longer having to keep up the facade. We don't have to keep selling ourselves. We can lay the last layer of our defenses down and be completely naked, both physically and in every other way. If you're married here, you know exactly what he's talking about. On some level, there is within those first few weeks, months of marriage that you really begin to see the other person without putting their best foot forward, right? I mean, you've probably like, oh man, this is not who I kind of thought this person was. And this is not what I expected it to be because there's now the safety and security that you don't have to impress this person so that they'll continue the relationship. There's all of a sudden this security, which is, begs the question, if you had had that security on the front end, would you have continued to marry You don't know. But the whole point is, that I forget the guy who quoted it in this chapter, but he's said that he's been married to this woman for over decades, and it's like she's been married to five different men, because we're inevitably changing, both in our own development, but the circumstances of our lives will always change us. We're evolving. And the promise of loving the other for the future is what provides the stability and security in doing that. And actually, I can't see the, the place where he talks about... Um, I'm just going to try and summarize it, because, but it says it's so good. Um, when you say that you don't need the piece of paper for marriage, it's basically saying, I... Um, I don't love you and yeah, I don't love you enough to curtail my freedom, but it's actually an indication that you're not really at a marriage level commitment. You're not fully ready to close off all your options. You're not fully ready. And so this is why 
and premarital counseling and all that, you're becoming one completely. There's no part of your life that is siphoned off from the other. And that's only within the, the legal, I'm going to bind myself legally to you. And so everything that I have, all that I am, is yours by law. There are witnesses. All of this provides that security, that framework to actually be vulnerable, which, going why I talked about sex in the beginning, and why he's talking about it, it's only in that kind of unbelievable security does the, you know, the thrill of the hunt kind of sex will eventually fade. But that's when, he, when he's talking about the get out of the performance mentality but the, the depth of love and security that two people have over decades provides what he, I think he says it's the difference between kind of like a noisy babbling brook and then a deep, peaceful river. And he's saying that deep, peaceful river is certainly full of passion, although it looks different than the noisy babbling brook. But that's what the life of marriage uh, is intended to be. It's this incredible depth and richness to it, both emotionally and physically. Uh, moving on quickly. So, the importance of promising for the future. There are a couple things that I wanted to highlight here. I love the he brings in Ulysses, uh, who, you Greek mythology, that he's on a quest, he's going, uh, ties himself as he's going to pass the sirens. He, he ties himself to the mast, so he hears the siren song. But he gets all of his sailors to put wax in their ears so they don't uh, hear this enticing and go off and get crashed and that sort of thing. But he's driving the ship or whatever, and so he's got, he keeps his eyes open, but he's tied to the mast. And it's only the, like, the image that he brings this image up so that we can think about in terms of marriage. It's only when you are so tied and bound to something like that that no matter kind of the siren song or whatever may change, you are committed to what you knew the long-term outcome was all about, what the goal was. Um, and he laments the fact, or he ties the fact to the, the staggering quotation or it's a study that was said two-thirds of marriages in five years, if they just stick it out, if they tie themselves to the mass for five years, two-thirds of them, those unhappy marriages, will become happy, which is just kind of amazing. But it, it's showing the importance of uh, just promising future love even when you don't necessarily feel it in the moment. And this obviously has been, uh, what he does lament is the ease of divorce. And this is one of the important things that I, he doesn't really go into. He does in the footnotes, he talks about the permissible reasons for divorce. You know, we think about, um, you know, what is the, the mantra of our day? It's all, you know, your own happiness, right? The Supreme Court decision, I forget which one it was, it was like, life is your own pursuit of liberty and happiness, that's sort of the right to define for yourself what is, um, what is your reality, basically. And in that sort of world, divorce becomes really, it, it's something that's made easier, uh, because it's all about, basically, each one choosing their own happiness. But historically, it was, it was really hard to divorce, and that's actually a good thing that he talks about. But it says that the, there's two places in the Bible that kind of give exception clauses. And I think that's really important because sometimes the church has been accused, and, and it has been rightfully accused because they've done something wrong, of basically forcing people to stay in something, like if you think about the two exceptions. So one is if your spouse commits adultery. 
Jesus says in Matthew 19, if your spouse commits adultery, it's permissible to, to get a divorce. I think that's one exception that is valid. And there's debate among Christians about kind of all across the spectrum of, uh, of this. But most Protestants agree that these two exceptions and what Jesus specifically says in Matthew 19 about sexual uh, immorality, adultery. And then 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that if your spouse, you know, you should marry a believer. He says you should be equally yoked. But as the message was spreading, you know, sometimes people become Christians and both spouses were unchristians. Well, if your spouse, who's an unbeliever, deserts you and leaves you, Paul says that is actually, that's the second exception to divorce. It's like if you were just utterly deserted, and he's thinking about the, the vulnerable. You think about particularly women or something like that, like who had no rights in that age. Um, these things are meant to protect. That's why the marriage is it's essentially saying it's, it's dissolved, because this is, uh, somebody's completely left their side of it. And I would say... You, you could fit desertion um, underneath that as um, basically abuse. Physical violence would be, I would say, part of abandonment in some way. And so these things, these are meant to protect the overall relationship. But Jesus, when he was confronted by the religious rulers who were you know, trying to put him on the spot and trick him, he basically said, you're trying to get out of marriage. You need to look for reasons to stay in marriage. And all too often our day, we're just looking for ways to get out of it. So, summing up, the power, the promising is, is important because it does a few things. This was amazing. Uh, remember the quote from Chris Rock in the first session that was like, basically, uh, those who, you can either be single and lonely or married and bored, I think was more or less the quote that he talks about. Interestingly, W.H. Auden, uh, on page 94, says this. <clears throat> Let's see, where is it? Oh, here we are. Yeah, right in the middle. W.H. Alden expressed it perfectly in one of his last books, A Certain World. He wrote, Like everything which is not in the, the involuntary result of fleeting emotion, but the creation of time and will, any marriage, happy or unhappy, is infinitely more interesting than any romance, however passionate. I mean, it's like the complete opposite of what Chris Rock said. <laughs> that is, the, any marriage, happy or unhappy, is infinitely more interesting than any romance, however passionate. And the reason he goes on to say a lot of that is because promising actually does a, a number of things. It, yes, it creates this safety where you can truly be yourself. But it actually, when you make an oath, when you make a vow to somebody, when you give your word, that does something to you as the giver of the vow. He cites that it actually, this is one of the, most, the strongest places where our very identity is formed. Let me figure out where that, that is, yeah. So, Lewis Smeeds, page 95. Uh, some people ask who they are and expect their feelings to tell them. But feelings are flickering flames that fade after every fitful stimulus. Some people ask who they are and expect their achievements to tell them. But the things we accomplish always leave a core of character unrevealed. Some people ask who they are and expect visions of their ideal self to tell them. I think that's definitely our age. But our visions can only tell us what we want them to be, 
not what we are. Smeed's answers that we are largely who we become through making wise promises and keeping them. So it's the very act of promising that solidifies our identity. It's not just good for the relationship. It's actually really important for you and your very identity. Who you are is tied to how well you uh, follow through on your promises, how well you keep your word. Uh, it's also, interestingly enough, when we're most free, you think about, you know, there are all, this is a lot of the end of the chapter, which fortunately kind of all says the same thing, but the idea that, you know, we're not robots. We have a will. We can actually do, we're not just creatures of fate. We have the ability to, to make a vow, to promise, and that creates a sense of freedom, that we're not just bound to, you know, whatever God has deterministically set forth, but we actually have the power of choice, and promising uh, taps into our freedom in that way. I want to close by looking at another really important thing here. It's, it's counterintuitive, but there's several ways that we see this. We live in a very emotive age that you have to, you have to find out who you are on the inside. What you really are is some secret hidden in the recesses of your heart. You have to find that true self and then express it at all costs. And that is a, just a, a suicide mission, really, because there's, there's no way to, that's not where identity is found. It's going to change uh, frequently, but that's called this, um, basically trying to express yourself at all costs to the world. And so we, we believe that we shouldn't do anything to contradict our authenticity, that unless we feel it, then we shouldn't do it. But that misses out on something really important about human beings and how they work. Humans work not just by... How, what we do often will shape how we feel. And if you've been to our worship service and you find it really... you know, This is a, a perfect case was this morning. I was not feeling it coming in to work this morning uh, with the, the rain coming down and just for whatever reason, I was not feeling super amped up to go into worship. But that's actually, you know, the, the people who put the book of Common Prayer together had this insight that human uh, affections and the, the heart is actually far more complex than just what we say today of just, you know, unless you feel it, you should do it. They believe that once you started doing some of these things, your heart's affections could be churned and turned and you'd start actually feeling what you wanted to feel. That's the whole design behind the liturgy. Is that's why we kneel. That's why it's so embodied. We stand, we kneel, we sing, we pray, we hear God's word. And all of this is meant because we don't do these things perfectly. They're intended to kind of be like a gymnasium where we go and work out so that on the uh, other side of them, we're actually far more uh, effective than we were on the front end. And so I, I think that's a really important part is What's the solution if I don't feel like I love my spouse? If I don't have these feelings, the solution is not just to, to chat, cash out and find somebody else because you're going to have this exact same problem in five years, seven years. The, the affection from them that you're trying to, to go, it's going to dry out. You're going to see things in them that you didn't like, and then you're back to square one all over again. The solution is actually in the power of promising and living into the vow that you made and by basically what God does, right? The way he loves is not, well, you know, in a consumer world, once they're, they follow through on their 
you know, if revenues are down, you cut expenditures, right? And so if they're not falling through on their end of the bargain, I'm going to do a little less than my best, we'll say, you know. If you're married, if you've been in any relationship, you know exactly what this is like. The way God loves is completely counter to that. It says, I'm going to be the best version of myself despite how you follow through on your end. That's why we looked at Moses leading the people out. Is that's what God is doing. He's freeing them despite their stubborn rebellion. And that's when you have two people coming to it. Is I'm going to serve this relationship despite, no matter how my spouse lives up day in, day out, I'm going to be the best version of myself, not just trying to live for myself, but for the good of the other person, regardless of how they do it. That's actually the secret to developing emotions. He cited, I, I was like, I know I've heard this uh, example before. I gave it last week. Like, if you're a parent, um, you pour yourself out for your children week in and week out, year after year. And, you know, you, they often will you know, when they reach teenage years, become snide and say, you've never done anything to me and all that. But he says, you know, even the most unattractive 18-year-olds, if they could be complete morons and have no friends because they're just terrible people, if you poured yourself out for them and truly sacrificed yourself for their good and they're still terrible people, by 18 years old, you are still going to feel a deep affection for them. Now, why is that? Because you've spent these days and weeks and months and years going through the, the action of loving and those feelings followed. And that's the real secret behind That's what the power of promise is all about. It's, it's what our liturgy gets at. Um, and it's, it's really what marriage is, is mostly about, is that you're able to, to find these feelings which do ebb and flow. But it's not by you know, getting out that all of a sudden you find the feelings. It's by going deeper into the committed action of loving the, the good of the other, uh, even at great cost to yourself. Let me encourage you, if you didn't... Oh my gosh, uh, sorry. If you didn't get to... Next time, you please stop me at like 10.15. That would be really helpful. I know I said too much, but I'm going to close this. You should read the last little section called He Stayed. Uh, I included that in, if you didn't read the chapter, just read that little bit in light of all that I shared today because that little chapter, or the little end of the chapter talks about Jesus on the cross where he could have gotten out, when he could have said, you know what, it's not worth it to do this. He stayed on the cross. And it's um, not just an example to follow, but as we talked about last week, that's where the power to continue on in the worst of relationships comes from that we can we can stay in it and live into our vows. Let me pray quickly and uh, we will scoot. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time. I pray that uh, the words that we've shared here and the content that we've talked about, Lord, it would, it would take deep root in our hearts. I pray that your spirit would do the work of applying it to our lives, whether we are single or dating, engaged, married, wherever we are, that we would learn more of what marriage is meant to be and that we... Uh, if you have marriage for us, uh, would, would have, in fact, fruitful, joyous marriages that are marked both by a deep commitment and rich, profound affection that comes on the other side of living out that commitment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.